0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. When we were all in architecture school, we made a ton of architectural models, but once we graduated, nothing. What happened to all the architectural models? Why did 90% of us quit making models? There's a case to be made in the value of building these models That's the topic that Andrew and I will be discussing today. Welcome to Episode 87, Architectural Model Making. Special thanks to NCARB for their generous support of today's conversation. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson.
1: And I'm Andrew Hawkins.
0: And today we are talking about architectural models. And I'm not talking about the people who work on my projects. (laughs) It's like, you got to wait for that one to land. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about architectural models. Why bother making them? Or should we still be making them? What's the point when we have amazing 3D rendering programs at our disposal? Are they expensive? They take a lot of time. Do people value them? What do they contribute to the process? All of that stuff this was kind of a late addition to our schedule of conversation topics. I think I was in the middle of doing some 3d printing and I, I sent a message to Andrew and I said, we should do an episode on architectural models.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, that sounds about right. He might've said why
2: <laughs>
0: or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think I would've been like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, part of the reason I think this might be interesting is a little bit, of this is journey down, I don't even know how to phrase it, my mind's going blank, you know that looking in the past and fondly remembering how things were for us when we Nostalgia? were- Nostalgia? Yeah, but there's a phrase in particular I'm trying to think, it'll show up in my brain oh. like 30 minutes from now. Okay. Memory lane. It only didn't take that long. Oh. <laughs> it came a lot quicker than I thought. Uh, okay. It's a little journey down memory lane, you know, because- Fair enough. Yeah. Model building was a huge deal. When I was in school, like we didn't have 3D printers. We didn't have laser cutters. We didn't have any of that
1: stuff. We didn't have 3D modeling. We didn't have computers. Yeah. That yeah. Real. Yeah. That's a fair point. <laughs> there was no
0: computer modeling. Yeah. At all. So I thought this would be an interesting topic. And the fact that since Andrew teaches, he has the power to make <laughs> as part of the curriculum or the deliverables to his students, like you need to present models. I kind of wanted to, cause you and I haven't ever talked about that before. Like, yeah. Honestly, I'm so far removed from it. I don't understand laser cutting and making a 3D model and sending it somewhere. And then it gets printed in the basement at the university. Yeah,
1: you'll pick it up later. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: got burn marks on it or there's used to. <laughs> I want to talk yeah. about that because I want to know a little bit about it. Yeah. So I thought just for the nostalgic part of our conversation that we would talk about classic model making materials. When you think of model making, what's the number
1: one material that comes to your mind? Actually, for me, I would say basswood. Really? Yeah. I think I, I use basswood more than anything to make models. So expensive. I
0: so expensive. I know
1: it was. But it's so pretty. It is pretty. But I mean, probably like chipboard, I guess. Is that what you were going to think? Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Or museum board, Well, you're going to
0: call it. I rarely use museum board, even though I know that that kind of became a big player for a lot of folks. But I could buy a sheet of chipboard for like 35 cents. It was not expensive. And yeah, yeah. I would say 95% of all the models that I made used chipboard in some capacity. And Basswood was really reserved for like that last model. The real kind of, you know, humble brag flex model that was at the end. It wasn't a study model. It was, oh, yeah. No, it's no. Done. Yeah, it was a
1: finished final model for your final presentation. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're like, check this out. Like That's the only time I used it
1: for. Yeah. Never. No other time. Oh, yeah. I mean, me too, I guess I should agree. And I had, But I had some professors that were like, you have to use Basswood. That was their material of preference. And so there was no way I could have used like chipboard or something.
0: I can't imagine. What a jerk, right? I, <laughs> I would look at those professors and seriously go, what is wrong with you? Do you not remember like being a student and you're just hoping that you can not eat ramen or peanut butter on white bread? <laughs>
1: For one day. Yes,
0: and you're saying you must use basswood? Yeah. I hate those people.
1: (laughs) They were some of my nicest models, I gotta say. But still. Yeah, yeah.
0: that bugs me. You know, we also, cardboard was another big player.
1: Oh yeah, I mean for study models, yeah, things like chipboard, cardboard. I mean, I let my students now, if you got an Amazon box, cut it up. I don't care. Like, this is a study model. This is not a finished sort of pretty thing. We're trying to just look at, investigate, and explore things. Yeah. If you want to get a little bit nicer, then paint it so it's all one color and the marks don't show up and stuff, but I don't care. If I'm asking you to make a model between this class period and the next class period in three days from now, I don't really care what it's made out of. I mean, I don't think you should spend a lot of money to buy basswood and stuff, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. No, 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 no.
0: I did. I sat on a design jury. It might have been, I was during all this COVID business. So I was, you know, I was in my bedroom or whatever camera watching
1: sitting talking. in your jammies
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was well at least from, i wasn't from the waist up from the least. from the waist up yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of the students they had built some study models and when they would put two pieces together they didn't glue them together they used masking tape mm-hmm. these models looked like garbage and now yeah. they had form to them i'll give them that But they didn't, like, cut them and then glue them and put them together. These were, like, just stick that against that and put a piece of tape to hold it together.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: I was kind of like, I mean, come on. Something. A little effort here might make a difference. Yeah. That bugged me.
1: I get mad at my students. I mean, I would never let them tape anything. And then it seems like lately they all want to use a hot glue gun. And I'm like, no, you can't use that either. Because then you get all those little strings and fibers that are everywhere and it gets globby on one end and it's not a smooth sort of thing it just starts to erode the whole point of the model right so it takes a little more time put a little white glue on there and hold it together till it dries you know and then be like okay
0: i will tell you this so there was a guy who i went to school with he was never one of my classes but he shared one of my studios one year Mm -hmm. and trying to say how can i say this without painting the picture that i don't want to paint He didn't have a lot of money. I mean, he was Uh, in college, so clearly he didn't have a lot of discretionary income, apparently. Not that the rest of us are all rolling in it, but he would make his models and do things. Like I remember he did a night perspective by going down and pulling out of the trash blue lines that people had run and then had cut off from their drawing. And he just taped together all these. Blue scraps of paper to make one big piece of paper, Mm -hmm. but it was dark, yeah. So he drafted like he drew it like it was nighttime, and that's why it was blue. Yeah, his skill level was next level.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: One time, he took the drawer out of the desk and turned it upside down and used charcoal, pastel, chalk on it and used modeling clay, and he used that as his base to build a site model on. And it was amazing. And the professor at the end, one of the jurors kind of said, and uh don't think you should use school property to be building your stuff on just for the next for the next uh, yeah. process. But one of the things that he did, I'd never seen anybody do it, and it became a heavy staple in my model making experience, is he would take cardboard and then he would pull the paper off of one side. Yeah. You gotta be careful about it a little bit, and he would be really clean about it, and you'd end up with this.
1: Like corrugated panel kind of thing, right?
0: And it was amazing, right? It looked incredible. Or even when he would cut and glue two pieces of cardboard together, you would cut away the corrugate and the paper from one side, but leave the paper on the other so that when you put the two together, you couldn't see the... It
1: was a clean corner. There was a correlation. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that was a big part of it. And I was sitting here thinking about, you kind of mentioned chipboard and cardboard, museum board, which is just a through-body color. It was expensive, so I never used it, and I guess I was always dirty, so people would use mm-hmm. white, and I always made mine, it was always dirty. And like-
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only ever used white museum board, I mean, the point was that it was this white pristine thing, and you had to really make sure to, like, keep it clean. You know, nowadays, if I did that, I'd be wearing plastic gloves all the time, like surgical type gloves, but back then, it wasn't that common to try to find a Box of surgical gloves like it is now, right? To be able to do that. But yeah, well, you couldn't order them on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Mine always got a little bit dirty and you could always see the glue a little bit. I do remember, though, I mean, I had a syringe that I would apply glue with. I mean, it looked like a normal needle syringe. It was a little bit wider and had this plastic tube that got down really small and had a curve on it. I could apply a single line of glue to, you know, a 16th inch thick piece of museum board been this perfect or as perfect as i could get it (laughs) right but it was better than the elmer's bottle or the super fat end of the tacky glue that i was trying to use to try to keep things as neat as possible but i used to really love making models
0: yeah i did too you know it's funny as you were mentioning the syringe i never did that but you know there's that expensive kind of gold bottle it's called like tacky glue Mm -hmm. that was like expensive glue and i was like i can't afford that (laughs) So I would, I'd buy these like huge jugs of Elmer's glue. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out that you barely have to use any. The reason why some people don't like using Elmer's glue is they're like, it's too wet or it doesn't dry fast enough or whatever. I go, you're using too much. Too much. Yeah. And whatever you think you need, like a 10th of that is what you need. <laughs> and it yeah. dries within seconds. I mean, like you can keep rocking and rolling if you use Elmer's glue correctly. But I used to always joke with my wife when my daughter was little, we were doing these arts and crafts project that I go, you need to check in with me with the glue that you need to use. When to use Elmer's, when to use the glue gun, when to use Gorilla yeah. Glue, when to use rubber cement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When to use a glue stick, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. All of or that. spray adhesive. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. your
0: glue guy. Yeah. Come to I me. Know. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, I used to use some plexiglass sometimes in some of my models too. Whoa. Yeah, that was always a pain to cut back then because you had to cut it manually. Like nowadays, you could probably laser cut it or something. But I use some plexiglass on models and stuff like that. I mean, I really used to get into model making. Maybe I'll be able to dig some up and put them in the post. But
0: Well, let me ask you this. That's a good segue here about old school versus new school. What we did mention, I'm just going to throw it out there so we don't have people coming at me. Like wire cutters and blue foam.
1: Oh, that yeah. was,
0: so I never used it. Yeah. Me neither. It was available, but I never used it. And part of the reason I didn't use it is because people would kind of eyeball as they cut it and you'd get these little like wiggly. I just didn't think it looked good. Right. It's not like they used a straight edge and got like these perfect, just perfect yeah. surgical cuts. So it wasn't for me, but I know that was a big player for a lot of people.
1: Like the hot wire. Yeah. Is that what are talking yeah. about? Right. Like, to cut through the phone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was always, I mean, there was people putting those things together. I'm like, dude, That is going to burn down the building (laughs) because you're like, I got a battery and I got to, you know, I'm like rigging this thing up and trying to see, and I'm like, you guys are going to hurt yourselves.
0: You can do something. So let me ask you this. So in your official professorial capacity, tell me a little bit about when do you require models for your students and like, do you give them any direction (laughs) and like, do they use laser cutters? Or if you said just use the exacto number 11, would they even know what that means?
1: Uh... Definitely in earlier studios.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: In our first and second year studios, we're doing things like that. In first year studios, it's always like, hey, it's an X Acto knife and you're using museum board or chipboard or something like that, right? And you're having to manually cut this. You got your 36 inch straight edge and you're cutting things manually. As they move to second year, at times they start to laser cut the pieces. How's that work? Walk me through that since
0: I've never done that before. So I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm joking. So most of the time they they just have to essentially take the building apart into separate pieces, essentially make a flat CAD file. So they're going to build a facade and it has a couple of layers to it. And they have to kind of either use the software to, like in Rhino, you can sort of make things 2D and flatten stuff out, which is what happens a lot. But in other things, you know, they got to draw it in CAD and draft it out. And then however big a sheet of whatever material that they're going to cut, they just lay all those things out. And it goes and laser cuts all those pieces, and then they start to assemble it and glue them together. It's a puzzle-making process for sure. Is it fast? The cutting part.
0: <laughs>
1: Doesn't it also burn it a little
0: bit in that part of the cutting process?
1: Yeah, it depends on the material that you're using and the thickness of the material and things like that. And most of the people that do it at my school, they put painter's tape down on one side of the chipboard. You cover that whole side in painter's tape, like blue painter's tape, and then you cut and then you don't get the burn marks that happen, or they're lessened. But it also just depends on how thick the piece is, and there's a lot of different factors involved with it. But yeah, it burns edges, and you, if it's wood, you can sand them down. But if it's chipboard, you kind of got to try to figure out how to protect it from getting burned. But the crazy thing to me about it is, if you do it correctly, those things can cut, I swear they can cut like 30 seconds of an inch of material. These little bitty bands of things. I had an exercise I did a few years ago where the students had to pick an image of a building and then construct this layered, almost like a shadow box piece, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to explain. But like all these different layers to make this 3D image of famous buildings. For instance, one of the... Oh, you know what?
0: I actually remember seeing that. I remember coming down there to do a jury with you and they were on display. I remember seeing some of these. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And some of those things, the little tiny cuts that they can make, like stained glass windows in churches and if the student took the time to draw it all out in autocad that thing could cut it some of that stuff is really amazing but it's kind of a tedious process i think for like final model things Mm -hmm. because you're actually just having to replicate it take your building apart as a puzzle i have some students that they do them for study models because they can draft something up and cut it out real quick and glue it together but i think the more intricate the model becomes again the more time it takes to do that like almost as much as For me, I could probably build it by hand at the same amount of time it takes you to draft it all out and get it cutted and then glue it back, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just a different skill set. They wouldn't know how to even start thinking about doing it by hand.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, so let me ask you this. Let's advance out of our college days Yeah. and reminiscing on how awesome we all were as model craftsmen. (laughs) never heard anybody say that they sucked at building models. I've never heard anyone say they were terrible at it. But clearly, we all remember people that were not great at it. But I, I got asked the question not that long ago.
1: <laughs> I didn't say that I was good. I said I liked it, do though. No. <laughs> I thought some of my models were good and some of them were probably terrible. Like, when I look back, I go, yeah, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. But I was trying to do crazy things with a model because that was the only way to represent my ideas.
0: Your crazy ideas? you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my recollection is my models were all amazing. Of course they were. You know, I mean, well, I don't remember any of them sucking. It's not saying that they didn't. I just, why would I clog up my brain with memories of me building crappy models? (laughs) Right? So I haven't done that. That's fair. That's fair. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Today, Andrew and I are sitting down with Jared Zern, AIA, Vice President Examination for NCARB the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, who has agreed to field questions related to the architectural examination process that were submitted a few weeks ago via my Instagram account. There were no limitations or restrictions to the questions, and we're going to go through as many as possible over the next three episodes. Hi, Jared. How are you doing? I appreciate you coming back and joining us to talk about questions regarding the licensing process. Thank you. I'm doing
2: well this evening.
0: Wonderful. So as we've gotten into before, we got a bunch of questions that were submitted. We want to try to spend as much time as possible to get through as many questions. So we're just going to cannonball into the deep end. Start with a <laughs> question, technically number five. So here we go. Why do we need a rolling clock? So if I passed an exam six
2: years ago, I still passed it. So why do I lose credit for taking tests that I've already passed? The rolling clock policy was implemented back in 2006, and it was implemented based on what we call exam validity. The reality is the ARE is constantly evolving. Every year, we cycle questions out. We replace it with new questions that are more relevant, and the analysis that has been done showed that after about a five- to six-year time frame, the exam has evolved enough that you lose confidence in someone's ability to then practice to current standards. I mean, codes get updated, um, other things change. And so the policy is really based on a validity standard that if somebody passed an exam 10 years ago on mechanical and electrical systems, yes, a lot of it is the same, but a lot of it has changed in the last 10 years. And so the state licensing boards were no longer comfortable accepting those results.
0: Interesting. So that was a result of the state licensing boards, because my pushback on that would be I took all the tests, passed them all the first time. Ten years later, I'm still capable of practicing architecture. So if somebody passed an exam, you kind of think, oh, check that off the box. They're done. It doesn't invalidate their passing because the same parameters exist for me in the same circumstance. I passed them all versus they passed their one. So but that's not an
2: NCARB thing. That's a state jurisdictional issue. It's an exam policy, and it's a state policy. It's a little bit of both. There were some states that did not adopt the rolling clock. They did not apply it for many, many years. And then they eventually decided to apply it. Right now, all of our jurisdictions follow the five-year rolling clock policy. Kind of back to your example, though, if you passed all the exams, then you do become licensed. Then we fall into a continuing education model, right? So as a licensed architect, I do continuing ed throughout the year. Every year to keep my license active. Yeah, but I do cool stuff.
0: I don't do mechanical engineering (laughs) continuing education. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. (laughs) All right, let's go to the next question.
1: Okay, this one's going to be directed to the point here. How does NCARB justify a four-figure expense to reinstate a record if I want to work in a new state? Financial to the point, right quick.
2: Right to the point. So the question really relates to somebody who has let their NCARB record lapse and then comes back to NCARB and says, okay, I need my NCARB record renewed because I want to transmit it to another jurisdiction for reciprocal licensure. So that fee is based on the fact of our staff time that have to go in and then revalidate all of the documentation related to someone's original license. One of the benefits of the NCARP certificate is that when we send it to the states, the states trust the data because they know our QC process has verified everything. So that B is covering that time to basically reevaluate your education, make sure it's still on file and still accurate, meets the state's requirements, check your experience, look at your exam scores, make sure you don't have any disciplinary action reported in any other jurisdictions over the past several years when you may not have been an NCARB record holder. We bundle all of that information up and then we send that to your future state. Interesting.
0: I would think that part of the pushback that you guys might hear on something like that is, you've already verified all this information once. Like you already verified I passed my test. You already verified I went to this college and then I graduated. So you shouldn't need to revalidate your own work because you're responsible to have having already validated it. But what was interesting is you brought up the point that there's behavioral issues you might have to check and make sure that there's no disciplinary action that's floating around out
2: there. Correct. We do that. And then certain jurisdictions also require, let's say you're licensed in three states already, and then you're going to get licensed in a fourth state. So we go and we actually have to look at all of your other jurisdictions. So it's not even just a one and done. It's maybe we're looking in Texas. Maybe we're looking in Louisiana and we're looking over in Nevada to look for information. Then we take all of that and send it to California, let's say.
1: So it's kind of like an architectural background check almost in a way.
2: It absolutely (laughs) is an architectural background check. And I think it's important for people to understand like very actions uh, can stay with you for a very, very long time as a licensed professional. Mm.
0: I don't like the sound of that. So (laughs) All right, Jared. Well, I appreciate you joining us again today and kind of helping us work through some of the questions and concerns that people have when it comes to taking the architectural licensing exam. Great. Thank you very much. Special thanks to our sponsor, NCARB, which is conducting a profession wide study called Analysis of Practice. If you are an architect or in the process of becoming one, your participation is valued and important in shaping the future of the licensing process. Please visit ncarb.org forward slash A-O-P, and be a part of the change you want to see. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about when do you get to build a model in an official capacity. And I know that it's different.
1: Like a professional capacity, you mean?
0: Yeah, what did I say?
1: You said official, but is that what you meant? Professional?
0: Okay, both are kind of applied. So let me elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Okay, sure.
0: So when I look at really big firms, a lot of them have Model making studios or labs within their business.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I don't know what the human being count dropped to before those tend to not exist. Because there seems to be, if you're small, from zero up to a certain number, you're more likely to build a model. But then from that number up to another much bigger number, you don't really build models. Yeah. And then yeah. then you're back to like, I'm really big and like ginormous, and I'm back to building models. Yeah. But I will tell you that I don't walk into a lot of offices and see tons and tons of models. And I don't see them
1: anymore. Yeah.
0: And I don't see them as, as a representation of the design process. I see finished models when I see them. Yeah. I see like the beautiful on display. I can't just like, surprise, I'm in your studio and I see somebody making models. Yeah. And I hear, I want to say, not only just more times than not, but the vast majority of time, I'm guilty of this as well. We built models when we had students available to us. Like there was no licensed architect. Like in my last office and most of what I'm talking about. Building models. Yeah. 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 So we had eight people that were like licensed architects or in the process of getting licensed. Almost none of them built models. And we waited until summer came around and then we would get two or three interns in our firm of eight (laughs) And they would just crank on models for a while. Yeah. And you know what? It's like they're built for it. They're in their prime. They're in their model making prime. And so when we think about what projects in our office were worthy of having a model built because they were not made primarily as explorations, they were used as
1: communicative devices. Yeah, they were like presentation models kind of.
0: Yeah, it was to facilitate a conversation with the client, say, look, I put it on the table, we can spin it around, you can see it, that kind of thing. It was not for me the designer, like I'm trying to figure out how this roof is going to work, and so I built a model of it. Yeah. That was not really something that we did. But even then, of the projects that we had, or at least of the models we made, It's like a certain price point had to exist in order for us to be able to allocate the
1: resources financially Mm -hmm. to pay to have models built. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There had to be some cushion in that job. The scope or scale of the project financially allowed for you to spend some time building models. Yeah. So if you'd
0: hired me to do a house for you and that house was like a $500,000, $600,000 house, you're not getting a model. I don't have the resources to do that. Yeah. And chances are you don't want to pay for me to have somebody
1: the extra time. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I thought it was interesting cuz we generally when we used our interns, like we pay our interns. Of course we pay our interns cuz we're not as it should be. Yeah. yeah. And we had them do real work and we would charge the client for their time. But considering that the vast majority of them didn't have any real technical skills, they were best utilized To do things like building models. And we would charge, I think we charged like $35 an hour for their time. Yeah. But these students, man, they could bang out a model in a week easy, like easy. But Mm -hmm. still, you had to have a certain kind of price project in order to absorb that cost. And
1: three people working a full week on a model. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well,
0: that only happened like once or twice. Normally it'd be like one
1: person banging out a model per model. I got you. Okay.
0: Yeah. We did build a model.
1: The giant one, the
0: Voltron model, and that <laughs> and that was two guys full time for an entire summer. I mean, that model cost—I don't even want to say—I don't even want to say. Yeah, you probably shouldn't.
1: No, but it was giant also though, because like, what scale was it at? Half inch? Oh God,
0: I don't even. You know, I no, I think it was. I think it was like one inch to a foot. Oh my God, we yeah. only built like twenty percent of the entire Part house. Was right. just the front. Because the house was so large that we want to evaluate the scale of certain elements as a part of it. But I can tell you that model was 12 and a half feet long and like six foot wide. Yeah. And we had to break it up into 12 individual pieces, which is why I always call it the Voltron model. Because you can't move a model like that around that much. Yeah. And I remember kind of arguing at one point, like I was really not a fan of this model. I was like, in our 1600 square foot office, we're paying how much in rent For the seventy-five square feet that we're warehousing, this giant model. Yeah, it got under my craw a little bit, but it was cool, and it spoke to the culture of our office to a certain extent, right? Which yeah, and I want to talk about that in a bit later, but I think there's a scale at which projects get models. Either the client's going to use that model for something, so they're buying a product, which is not a part of the design process, right? That's the end of the project. Mm -hmm. We do projects now where we're sending these models out to get built by like professional model builders. We're not building them in-house. Yeah. But when I think about the true value, the craft, the ownership that is the architect and the role that they have in creating a model, it's a design exercise. It's not a product exercise, right? So let's talk a little bit about, okay, if that's the process, what phase of the project are you in when you build these models?
1: I think it depends. Again, I think it depends as to, What the end goal becomes, like you mentioned, for some people, you're sending these out in their marketing tools. And I think that's when, you know, when you talk about those much larger firms that have in-house model makers and build a lot of models, I think those are more about marketing efforts. They're building some model of a 90-story tower that can be placed in some office somewhere that they're going to use to get investors and things like that. Yeah. That's the kind of model that that is. As you get beyond that or maybe below that down the pay grade right i think models are more about design tools to try to understand yeah either the whole project or parts of it we didn't talk about it a lot but to me that's some of the benefits of being able to 3d print smaller to mid-scale models of things is because it can go quick but also you can start to see you can use it as an exploration of a design tool about you know how certain things work and how it's going to scale out what the proportions are and all those kind of things and it happens in a much quicker way than than it used to.
0: Boy, that's the whole thing with the 3D printing. You know, it's funny. We talked about 3D printing. I don't can remember what episode it was in. And I ended up writing. Yeah, it's been a while back. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote a blog post about it. And for one of the residential projects that we have, I was like, you know what? I want to do a 3D model. We have a 3D printer in the office that like nobody ever uses. So <laughs> yeah. like, let's use it. And what was funny. So we ended up doing like two or three versions of this because there was a learning curve. Because what we yeah. were asking this thing to do, nobody had really asked it to do in the same way mm-hmm. before. You know, I take the roof off, pull the first floor off. How do I, our printing bed wasn't big enough for me to do the whole thing, so I had to the do The whole it. thing. Yeah, so how do I like jigsaw Tetris this thing together? And once we started doing it.
1: So then you can like put a lighter into the bottom and melt it together.
0: <laughs> we we use tape. That's I'm joking, I know, I'm joking. Yeah. But, yeah. but when we started using it, I noticed for about a month, other people started to use it. Yeah. Like it became this thing that like, oh yeah, we have this. We should do this. Why aren't we doing that? Why don't we print this out? It'll look great. We can have a better conversation with the client. Yeah. It became a thing for a while. But for us, that was DD level work. Mm -hmm. Because like the model we were talking about, that's the 40 story high riser, you know, the really big projects that are going in the sales office to help explain what we're doing or generate funds and, you know, do like fundraising effort kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Those are, we used to call those railroad models. That was the phrase that we used to call them. And it was in reference to people who would build railroad models and they'd want like like, model trains. Yeah. Yeah. Like model trains, you know, and they like in their garage and they're wearing their overalls and they got their conductors hat on and they're buying their, different size scale trains and laying out the tracks, but they want trees and they want a bridge and they want a water tower and they want like the bus depot and they start building these towns, but everything is as real as it can possibly look like brick is represented. Shingles are represented snow on the, everything's represented. (laughs) Yeah. And for the most part, the type of models that we built in school never represented anything other than form and mass and shape and scale. Very rarely, I'm going to put a caveat on that, very rarely yeah, did anybody build models to reflect final materials. Rarely. Mm-hmm. Like even the list of materials we talked about, the chipboard, the cardboard museum board, the basswood, those are all neutral materials. Mm-hmm. And so you're not saying, well, this is brick. Because you know what? You don't want people focusing on the fact that it's brick. You're like, "It's the shape right? Is the space right? Is procession that yeah. I'm trying to articulate correct? So we would print things out. You know, we did that experiment in our office where we printed out, and everybody loves it. That model gets picked up all the time, and when they do tours to of the office, the pod where I sit in, we have all that stuff sitting out, and people gravitate towards it. But I will tell you that 3D printing models is not cheap, number one. It's not fast, and I don't know if I just have an old machine, which I do. I think my machine's probably, I don't know, five-plus years old. By getting a bigger bed, getting a faster piece of equipment, would allow me to do these explorations in a more timely manner. However, I could go, I could just build it out of chipboard, and and I would understand it super fast.
1: Yeah, I could just cut some cardboard up real quick and get the same thing. As far as the idea of comprehending it, which is what those models are about. I think the 3D printing thing is kind of a, a mix, maybe, or can be. It's sort of a final product, but has that level of refinement because of just what it is and how it's created. But I think that if you're just using them as DD tools and it's internal, right? Like you're not going to show it to anybody. I assume that 3D printed model you actually showed to clients or something, right? As opposed to just, it was in the office and I, that's when chipboard and tape is okay or whatever, right? But yeah. you're not going to roll into that in a client meeting. Even if it's just a progress meeting, and go, hey, look, check out my Captain Crunch box. um <laughs> model that I made.
0: <laughs> you know what? The people whose house that we modeled have never seen it in person.
1: Oh, in person? In person.
0: Yeah. Now, we like held it up and you know, we showed it to them, but yeah. We haven't been back down face to face. Everything we're doing is remote. This is a project for a house that's not in Dallas. Yeah. So they've seen it. It was a design resource for us to kind of explore what we were doing. Mm-hmm. But they've never seen it in person, which I find A little sad. At some point, I would imagine that, I mean, I'd be up for giving it to him.
1: Yeah, let him have it,
0: yeah. The kick in the pants on that is, is that we've made changes because we did it during the DD process. The house, while very close to what the end product is, it is not the same as the end product. Not the same, There are differences. So when I give it to them, it's an iteration they're going to have. Like, it'd be cool to say, hey, the house that you're standing in, here's the model for it. That would be kind of cool. But they're like, yeah, Yeah. but this part's different. Like, we changed that. And it wouldn't make much sense for us to go backwards to then make another model for the purposes of printing that out. Why would I go backwards to build essentially what is a DD-level model of a finished product? Because I will tell you, I'm going to go on the record right now, I have zero interest in building any models that look like railroad models. (laughs) I don't want to represent
1: materiality. I don't care about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess if they were really... I mean, and if a client really wanted it right, I might say, all right, well, I'm going to print this sort of DD level model of what you actually ended up constructing. But that would be something that I feel like they'd have to pay me for.
0: (laughs) Right. And you know what? I did have notes in here and it was like, "Our models expensive to build? And I put it in there and I kind of mentioned, hey, when we had the interns, this one person put this model together in a week, her rate was $35 an hour is what we charged for. And we did charge the client for this process. I think we spent about three hundred dollars in model material. So all in her week of time plus the materials brought that model to seventeen hundred dollars.
1: Yeah, so I just did the math. I was like, yeah, that's seventeen hundred bucks for a uh, yeah. for a model. And I don't know that anybody would want to pay that much for one.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of a lot. So it has to work more than just be like a thing that you look at. Now maybe if the budget on the house is big enough, there's value in that. Mm-hmm. But at the very end of my notes, I put a note in here because I thought it'd be funny to mention, is what happens to the models after they're built? Yeah. You know what? They
1: sit around and collect dust, mostly.
0: The owners don't take them. Yeah. You would think that they would. I mean, most of them, they paid for them. Yeah. They don't want them. Yeah. They don't want them.
1: They don't want to have to take up 75 square foot in their house (laughs) to store this thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that guy took one of the 12 pieces.
1: Wow. Great. Now I have an incomplete model. Well, you know,
0: (laughs) we did finally get rid of the eleven, and we put them out on the curb for big trash pickup. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and probably ten of the eleven disappeared. That's not true. I'll change the math. At least one of the guys who built it took a
1: piece. piece. Yeah, he
0: kept a piece. I don't know if the other guy did or not. I don't remember it. But the rest of them, they got set out the curb and people scavenged them, like they're like yeah dollhouse or something i don't know
1: something yeah they didn't actually make
0: their way to big trash pickup but we built some really nice models and i can tell you the owners never want them and i don't know if that's because they're too big if it was like this little dainty thing which i could do with the 3d printer to a certain extent mm-hmm. like the one we printed out for these folks i think it's something along the lines of about nine inches square it's not huge
1: yeah i think once something gets over about 12 or maybe even 18 inches Something that could fit on a shelf and be a a knickknack size, like a tchotchke kind of piece that nobody really wants them anymore because it is, it's just too big. What are you going to do with it? I'm not just going to set it on my coffee table forever.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? So in the front room of my house, I have a couple of acrylic boxes that have plaster models in them. Yeah. And I think they're cool as things. And I go, why wouldn't somebody, if I was this client that we're doing this house for, I 100% would take that 3D model and I would box it up and it would hang on my wall hundred percent yeah there's zero doubt
1: because it's small enough though yeah once it gets to be too big once it doesn't fit on a shelf or something like that or if it's too deep to hang on a wall i think you kind of start it loses appeal to your client or to people i think probably
0: well so one of the upsides at least for the architectural office component of this is so we had models
1: Like, all over the place. Everywhere.
0: Yeah,
1: and it makes your office look cool.
0: It did. Our office looked amazing.
1: Yeah, I know, right?
0: And at one point, we even, and I look at it and I go, I don't know why I didn't do this a long time before, but I ended up getting a buddy of mine who owns a really, really high-end, not, like, high-end expensive, but, like, he's got equipment that only exists in, like, three places in the world, and they do really, really tight, zero margin of error metal fabrication. And I said, hey, would you take some blackened steel and bend it to me in this shape? <laughs> and he goes, "Uh, that would be a garage project. And I go, what does that mean? He goes, like, backdoor. We'll just do it. Yeah. Just tell me what you want. We'll just make it happen. And he wasn't dismissive, but he's like, the bandwidth for me to even process that bill is not worth the time for me. To, I'll just do it. <laughs> you yeah. know?
1: He's like, that's so simple and benign. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're,
0: we're making computer cases by the billions for people and like, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about this. So he yeah. ended up bending these metal shells for us that we mounted to the wall in my last office because we had run out of horizontal surface to put these models. And so they started like sitting on the shelf yeah. and leaning against the wall. And every day when I sat down to work, I felt cool, surrounded by this stuff. I felt like this is what being an architect is supposed to feel like.
1: Supposed to be, yeah.
0: Yeah, people walked into the office and they're like, yeah, your office is exactly how, in my mind, I thought an architect's office was supposed to look.
1: An architect's office would be, yeah. Yeah. Instead of some office where there's just computers, it looks like they could be accountants or architects. Who knows the difference? It's all just computer desks and cubicles.
0: Yeah, there's that whole kind of, there's no doubt in my mind that if, If we were trying to recruit somebody or have them come into the office for an interview, they would walk in and go, yes, this is, this is cool. Like there's like this. And also kind of presented the idea that we were designers. Like we created things. We made things. Like the act of taking nothing and creating something manifested itself in our office. That alone had huge value to it. No doubt.
1: Yeah. I mean, they do make things look designery. When you have them on display or, you know, have things out or like I tried to frame old drawings and stuff. So at least it starts to look like, you know, there's something happening. But I think, yeah, in movies and stuff like that, that's what architect's offices always look like too, right? Like there's miles of crap everywhere and it's all cool looking and da-da-da-da-da, right?
0: Well, you know, it's funny you brought that up because we got contacted by like a production studio. Oh, uh uh-huh. Who was filming a show called Queen of the South. And they wanted to rent one of our models for a couple of days for a shoot that they were doing. So we're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Why wouldn't we do that?
1: Yeah, who cares? Yeah, especially if it's, if it's done. It's
0: done. It's just sitting there, yeah. right? Yeah. So they paid us like $500. They came and picked it up one day, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, then they left and they brought it back like two days later. And then fast forward like six months, the episode came out and they sent me a message like, hey, just so you know, the episode's coming out like this week. So we had a watching party at my house. I made barbecue and everyone in the office that could come came and we watched it. And it was the show. I think a lot of people loved it, but the scene where they used the model was like hilarious because the guy was like, architecture is my passion. I think they're drug dealers. I've never seen the oh, show. Nice. And they're like, what's this? He's like, I'm building a house. Architecture intrigues me. And we're like dying laughing a little bit. That's funny. Yeah. So there was a whole thing to it, but. We had all these models sitting around our office, and it set a mood, it set a vibe, it made the place feel cool. Yeah. I miss it, to be honest with you. I miss it. Yeah.
1: Along those same lines, I know that there are, and I can't remember, and maybe we talked about it on the show, but we've had conversations, I think, with somebody about there are companies that they just build models for movies and stuff. I mean, like you're talking about, like background models for architects' offices or any of these kinds of things, and that's what they do. They build these models for as props that's literally their job is they're building model props Mm. to inhabit random scenes and whatever three men and a baby or some crap there's an architect's office and so there's all these models in it which i think is really funny
0: maybe we were the bargain option for 500 bucks
1: yeah probably
0: it's like get one that already exists
1: one of my sort of favorite architecture ish movies i mean it's really dark and depressing but it's called life is a house and this guy that's his job in the architecture firm is he like builds all these models And at some point, he ends up getting fired because nobody builds models anymore. And so he gets this drawing tube and rolls through the entire office and smashes every single model that he's made for this company. Oh, my gosh. He's like, I quit. And he's rolling through and he's just beating the crap out of all of them. Because when he got fired, he said, look, I've been here for 30 years. I've done stuff. He's like, can I keep one of these models? I mean, I've done so much for the company. And like his boss, who's played as a jerk, is like, yeah, sure. So he goes back down, sits at his desk, picks up like this drawing tube and just walks around this whole office just obliterating right? all these models and then he walks up to one he's like, yeah, this one I want to keep and he picks it up and he just keeps smashes smashing all the, all the others. rest of it. Yeah. It's really kind of funny. It's a, it's a hilarious moment in that movie that I think as a student or somebody you could really identify with like, God, I've built all these models. I just want to smash them all because I'm so angry about stuff. I think it's kind of funny. You know, I, this is I'm
0: hijacking the moment a bit but so one of the things I always thought was kind of interesting, and what you just said, at the movie and all that kind of stuff, made me think: Did you ever have a professor like take your model and break a piece off it?
1: Take pieces off of it, yeah.
0: I would never. I can't imagine somebody. I've never saw it happening. It never happened on one of mine, and I actually uh. don't, never saw it happen. As you're telling me that guy smashing models, I'm sitting there going like, oh, "There's no way. <laughs> like, how could you? How yeah. could you smash these things that you made?" And it made yeah. me think about the number of times I've heard people say that, like, professors go, this would be better if you didn't have this piece. And they would snap it off. Man, I would snap you off if you <laughs> mess with <laughs> You know, I can't imagine. Well,
1: I think, I had it happen to me, but it was always sort of in thoughtful ways. Like, they would take a piece off carefully. They weren't destroying my model, per se. You know, they'd take some little piece and kind of pull it off and say, all right, now see, now this, you've got a clearer view, or this path is now more consistent, or, I did have stories of a couple of professors when I was in undergraduate where they were like breaking off big, large chunks and, or tearing pieces and things like that. I'm like, man, mm-hmm. that is. Uh. I mean, there are times where I want to do that now. Not tear <laughs> things, but like take a piece off. I don't feel so bad breaking off a piece of chipboard that's sort of glued in a spot. I just feel like I could just, now it's so much better. Still, I, I feel like people would cry. Like I feel like it. you would cry.
0: I would cry. I'm 53 yeah. years old and I would cry. And you know what? And if I thought a piece needed to come off, I would ask the student to take it off. I'd say, hey, can we take this off? Will you you take that piece off for me? Let them own it. But there's no chance, no chance that I would do it myself.
1: I mean, I never have, but there's times where I really wanted to.
0: You know, it would be different if you're in the class. If it wasn't during the jury session and they're standing up and they're trying to like get their game face on and they're like not wearing baggy pants or whatever, like they're they're like, okay, I'm taking this serious. Yeah. Hey, the last one I remember I sat in for you, people dressed for it. Well, that's because
1: I tell them to, but a lot of them don't.
0: Yeah, but like if you're just walking around the studio and they're like wearing their like, you know, what up, my dude? Clothes? (laughs) Yeah. People don't talk like that. (laughs) Anyway, then it seemed like, okay, we're in a space where that kind of additive, reductive process is fair game.
1: Acceptable, yeah.
0: Yeah, but not... When people are presenting. I just can't imagine that would.
1: Yeah. That's the same thing. Well, I mean, it's a whole different thing, but, but like drawing on somebody's final drawings. What? That doesn't yeah. happen. What? Sure. Now it does. Why not? Uh, it wouldn't happen when we were in school because all that stuff was by hand. So it was a much different thing.
0: Everything was an original.
1: <laughs> yeah. But like I can draw all of this stuff and all you're going to do is reprint it anyway. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not okay. like, eh, it's not the same.
0: Yeah. I'll give you that. But there's my hand drawings are on the wall. Oh, yeah. You're not marking on them.
1: Oh, I know. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I was going to say that leads us into, I guess, this last topic, and maybe we can go through it. But the idea of what you wrote here about the difference in the advantage of physical models over digital rendering right. and digital models. Like, how does that really work? And I still, even though I don't have my students build as many models as I would like to, I think that there is some just innate benefit of a physical model over any kind of digital model that ever gets drawn. Right? You just don't understand it quite the same. There's aspects to being able to, like you say, look at it and understand it. And even if I'm looking at it on a computer, it's still just different. Yeah, It's not the same as sort of having it in your hand. And At times I try to make my students build sectional models, just a wall section with some stuff attached to it. There's a process of learning that happens there that doesn't happen if they're going to just draw it in some 3D modeling thing. Because when you have to deal with things like gravity, <laughs> you know, in building this physical model, guess what? You start to realize, oh, man, I can't, I can't have this thing be that thin because it's not going to hold itself up. It's not going to work. Yeah, it just doesn't work. You start to understand some of those things a little bit better. So, I mean, I do think physical models really have a role to play, and it's sad that they don't get created probably as much in school anymore as they used to.
0: Well, you know, I've come around a little bit on the value that renderings play in the creative process, especially since as I've taken on more and more projects around the country and I can't be sitting across the table from somebody, I cannot discount the value that digital renderings provide. But the difference is we call it working without a net in the office, Mm -hmm. and it is we don't create rendered images and show those we actually open up the three-dimensional model and we work live in the model because what we found is if I put a physical model in front of you doesn't matter what I do with it you are always oriented you understand where you are relative to the whole at all times because the models quite frankly aren't so big that you can't understand your relationship to where you're at relative Mm -hmm. to the model as I spin it around if I put a stack of Printed out three-dimensional renderings, there's yeah. this mental shutdown, reassessment, relocation, reorientation process that happens that kind of takes a little bit of the steam out of the momentum that happens when you're walking somebody through a project. When we show somebody, and again, this has really been proliferated since we've the number of Zoom or go to or Teams meetings that we have now as part of the creative process that are happening. It's gone up thousands of percent. Yeah. Not like we had one and now we have two. It's like, well, whenever one we had before, (laughs) now we have 50.
1: Yeah. Or we only had one before and now we have 500.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's profoundly different. So when somebody's sitting in front of their monitor and we're opening up and sharing our screen and we're saying, here's the 3D model and we're spinning around through that and we're setting up our views and things are moving so they can still kind of keep themselves in the correct orientation to the hold. It still works. Yeah but it never works as good in the beginning as a physical model does. It plays a different role. It has a different role downstream. When we start talking about lighting and finishes and materials (laughs) and how we lay out stuff within the space, like that's much easier because there's a scale difference. But during those end of SD, beginning of DD, when a lot of the physical models that we've least in my mind that we've been talking about, when those show up, we're not really inside the building yet. Not really. Yeah. And physical models win every time. Every time physical models win.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in reality, even with all the laser cutting and 3D printing and all those kind of things, a physical model to represent an interior is really, in my mind, not really practical. <laughs> that's where the renderings come in. To me, that's like model train, model on steroids. Yeah. To get one of some kind of interior model that has all the materials and all the things that you want to see on an interior model, that sort of level of detail that's expected when you're on an interior space versus what's happening on the exterior and the form and the shadows that get cast and all those sorts of things to understand how it all works as a whole. Yeah. Rarely
0: do I see anybody doing, like
1: in my life,
0: rarely. (laughs) Can I remember a time when somebody built an interior? Now, the Voltron model, part of that was so that you could like feel what the interior spaces might be like. Because that house was so big, the living room was 2,000 square feet. Oh, good Lord. That's how big that yeah. house was. You know, and of course, he was that guy who's going to fill it with stuff, grizzly bears and all that kind of stuff. Because, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that, that's who that guy was. But other than that, I can't think of a time when anybody built a model for the purpose of evaluating an interior finished space.
1: Well, I can say when I was in grad school, there was an interior department, interior architecture department at the graduate level, and they were building models like that all the time. I'd be curious if they do that now, because back then computer programming and model making was in its infancy, and so you weren't really able to make these nice renderings that we can do now, or if you did, it was like seven yeah. days to make that happen or something, right? right? I would be curious to know like, if they do those things now, but when I was in grad school, it was almost like, They were making these sort of interior swatch models so you could see all these different interior components together in this space. But they were always probably at Voltron scale (laughs) modeling, right? Like they were big. I mean, it was like a small space, but it was a large scale model. Right. It was like one room at like one to one inch equals a foot. So it was this big thing so they could really get into it.
0: Well, let's hope that somebody who listens to the show can give us a picture, give us some feedback on that. I'm taking it that we're both pro-model. You know what? And I think everybody should be pro-model. I don't know. Why would anybody be anti-model, really? We're not really that far out on the branch on this, I don't think.
1: I, mean, I would hope not. Do any of your students go like, oh, models. Like, oh, yeah. Ugh. All my students hate models. Do they? Mm-hmm.
0: We all loved models. What is...
1: I know. I did too. It's just, it's a different culture, though. They want to do the renderings. They want to do all the yeah that kind of stuff, right. They don't want to make a physical model.
0: we're turning into the stay out of my lawn people
1: Andrew. I know we are we are <laughs> what I'm really trying to figure out is how to to get things I want to work it so that they start to three d print models that are a little bit more intricate and detailed than just a blob mm-hmm. so I can get a sense of the building, but then we just run into problems of scale because yeah, the build plate and things like that are detrimental, but
0: you no, know, I made the crack about the where the Stay out of my yard. <laughs> now I'm keeping this Frisbee, you know, we those yeah. people. But I will tell you that when the models were showing up, like the models that I'm making now, everybody loves them. And I go, I mean, these are people that graduated a year ago. Yeah. So it's not like they're old fuddy-duddies. These are 24-year-old people. And they're all like, models are awesome. Yeah. But I, I'm well aware of the fact that there are people out there that would much rather avoid ever making a model Yeah, and would prefer to work digitally (laughs) exclusively.
1: I think they would say they're awesome to look at and have. They're not awesome if they were the ones that were making them. I think that seems to be the difference. Yeah, I mean, I think my students think models are really cool. They don't want to have to go through the process of making one. Well, that's a fair point. (laughs) Because it's so time-consuming compared to, oh, digital renders. All I got to do is turn the view and hit render, and in two minutes I get this All these views, right? As opposed to the time, right? I think it's more about the time it takes to make these things.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I will tell you because it seemed like of the vast majority of time because we spent ungodly amounts of time in studio when I was in school. Yeah. It was all the time. Mm -hmm. And the time we spent making models, just like put on your headphones and like put on some cassette tape, right? Put that on and just rock out and build models
1: Yep, and cutting and glue and cutting and glue and cutting and glue, right? Yeah.
0: From like seven o'clock at night till two in the morning, like all the time. It was so, like, rote. It wasn't, you used 1% brain power and then you used 99% just physical exertion, right? Just the yeah. act of making it. it wasn't hard. It just took time yeah. and it just was like this activity. I have very fond memories, actually, of that.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, it was the same for like hand drafting things. I don't think
0: I hated it when I
1: was doing it. Yeah, I did never either. I loved it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I made I made giant models. I mean, the biggest model I ever made was like a two-by-four frame that was like six or seven feet on one side, and it was like a triangle. And Jeez. I had a hinge on one side of the two-by that opened it up so you could see the model in section. And, I mean, I did all kinds of crazy stuff like that. You're
0: going to have to dig those pictures out.
1: I think I can find them. But the yeah. problem is, is like it's they're probably terrible quality <laughs> photos. You know, it's like... Uh.
0: <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I, I didn't keep, you know, some people still like talk about, oh, I have all my stuff from school. I threw all that crap away.
1: Yeah. I got a friend of mine that he kept some of his undergrad models and his grad school models. And he, I don't know if he still has them, but he made this crate system that he put them all in and stored them because he moved all over the country a couple of times. And he would just load them up into this custom made crate thing, like this wood box that he would move around the country with them. I mean, he's been in Phoenix for a while, so I don't know if he still has it or if he finally decided to chunk them, but.
0: And then he goes, why did I move these things all over the country?
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because again, right? It's that thing of, well, all my models are awesome. Can't remember what they look like. (laughs) Sure.
0: All right. So I'm going to say that's the end of architectural model making. Awesome conversation from my standpoint. Very fond memories of the process.
1: Make more models, people. Make more models.
0: You know what? I'm going to rededicate myself to making more models. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to. Keep keep it alive. I'm gonna keep the process alive. Yeah, we need to move on to the would you rather question.
1: Sure. Do you have one?
0: <laughs> of course I
1: do. Okay. Of
0: course I do. You're gonna I spring
1: have, it on me because it wasn't in the email you sent me earlier. So. No,
0: it was, Well, you know what? Because you have a choice. Oh, you okay. have a choice. All right. So we'll cut all this bit out and we'll just say, I will just say what the question is. So well, you can just choose. pick one.
1: You pick one. It's fine. We'll just go with it.
0: Okay, we'll go with this one. All right. And this is one. This is off your list.
1: Oh, okay. That's fine.
0: Would you rather kill nine innocent? No, that's not. It. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember. That. You're like, it sounds like me, but I don't remember that one.
1: This sounds like my old list, the yes. ones that you nixed. Yeah, 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 yeah. All
0: your death ones. Okay, now this <laughs> this one's straightforward. I actually don't think that there is necessarily a right answer to this, but I do think that your answer is probably locked into your formative years. That's what I think.
1: Okay. All so here right. you
0: go. Would you rather? Give up eating dessert or fast food? Oh,
1: yeah. This is an easy one for me, though. And I don't even know what it has to do with my formative years. It just has you know to what? do with. Like, I
0: know what your answer is, too. 100%.
1: And it's going to be I give up dessert.
0: Yes. That was a totally easy, predictive.
1: And not because I love fast food, but I'm just, I'm not a sugar guy. Yeah. I don't eat a lot of sweets. If there was a choice between having cake for dessert or salty pretzels i'm gonna have salty pretzels for dessert i'm not a sweet tooth kind of guy so it's easy for me to give that up
0: i thought you're gonna say if the choice was eating a delicious lava cake for dessert or having another steak i would have another steak sure exactly (laughs) that's the
1: truth too right i'm not a big sweets guy so that's not a hard choice for me and it's not like i'm just that in love or enamored with fast food but i just i'm not that enamored with desserts that's an easy pass for me in that regard so and i think i probably know your answer because I know you're not enamored with one of those other things. Like, you kind of hate it, so.
0: No, you know what? I chose this question for this reason. I want you to guess. So what's my answer?
1: I mean, I think your answer is you get rid of fast food.
0: Uh, You know what? I don't know that that's wrong. I don't know if it's right either yet. I'm still, I still haven't answered. I still haven't figured out what my answer is.
1: Here's why. I think that's why. But well, go ahead.
0: One, I didn't grow up eating fast food. I don't know why, but we just never did. I never developed a taste for it. Like, the number of times it pops through my head to go through a drive-thru and pick up some food is literally never and it's not because i eat healthy i eat garbage people i am not a healthy eater
1: (laughs) you eat garbage people what are those
0: (laughs) yeah i eat no i'm not that i need to eat my vegetables i'm not that person
1: yeah i i know
0: but i never i told someone the other day the first time i had mcdonald's in my life in my life i was like 26 years old first time i ever had mcdonald's yeah all right, so I don't have a taste for it.
1: Yeah, and I just know that that's when we talk about eating something. That's not your MO. You're not a person that wants to grab and go stuff normally. You want to sit down and have a meal. And I think maybe that's part of what it is about the fast food thing. It's like your dad getting a meal is not going through a drive-thru and getting handed a bag. Even yeah. if you were to go sit down somewhere and have a meal that was quickly prepared and given to you, that's the preference over like, I'm driving through somewhere in my car to get a bag handed to me that I'm eating stuff out
0: of. Yeah, I don't want to do that. And I also have this, like, I can make this at home.
1: Yeah, you like... do. I know. <laughs> We've had those conversations about sandwiches. Yeah. I don't want to pay somebody to make a sandwich.
0: I don't want to go eat a ham sandwich somewhere. <laughs> I can make my own. And if, you know what? It's because I make a good sandwich. I mean, I'm a sandwich artist. No, but here's why this question's a little hard for me. Because I don't really like desserts either. And it's yeah. not because I don't like sweets. I love sweets, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, people are going to come at me. You know what? Come at me, people. <laughs> I'm not a big chocolate person. Mm. And I don't dislike chocolate. I just yeah. like dark chocolate. Uh, not really. It's not for me. I mean, because I oh. like the sweeter milk chocolate, oh. right? Because I, I do like sweet things. I love things. dark chocolate, yeah. Not me. So when we go out and we're like, hey, let's get dessert. You know the kind of desserts I like? Creme brulee. Or like flan. <laughs> like these kind of caramelized vanilla sugar. Yeah. Just give me like a bag of melted sugar. I'm good to go
1: (laughs) with some cream in it. Warm cream and sugar. That's what I'm after. What's
0: wrong with that? So desserts don't. And you know what? I don't like cookies either for the most part, which is weird. I don't hate cookies, but if somebody goes, you want a cookie? I'm going to go, probably not. I never sit here and go, Oh, it'd be good right now is to have like a cookies or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And my household growing up, ice cream was the dessert Mm. that was, if any yeah. dessert was available, it was ice cream. So I love ice cream. I'll eat ice cream all the time. Yeah. So this is a hard one for me. So I kind of go, eh, fast food maybe. <laughs> You're like,
1: man, I don't care.
0: Yeah, I really, I don't care. I could give up either one of these and be
1: fine. Uh, maybe. It sounds like you might not want to give up ice cream. You just had it two nights in a row. Imagine not having that. I mean, ice cream is dessert. I do like ice cream. Yeah, so I don't think you could give up ice cream.
0: Right? Yeah, but you know what? I also like chicken tenders
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you can get those in a non-fast food way they're served at any sit-down restaurant you ever want to go to guaranteed well here's the other
0: thing here's the other thing i like the food that is fast food but i would rather make it is a big part of it i'm really torn on this one do i have to answer yeah i'm gonna say give up fast food yeah you have to answer because i wouldn't really miss anything
1: yeah, you would. I don't think because you make all your own fast food, and or you just complain about whatever fast food is. No, but
0: here's what we didn't get into: fast food isn't really about the food. Sometimes it's about the convenience, right? Well, maybe it's always about the convenience. Yeah, yeah. So the only time I do eat fast food is when I travel because it's like the only thing that's available, or I have to grab something before I get on the flight. If I can't eat yeah, fast yeah. food anymore, what am I going to eat? There's nothing available. So from a practical standpoint,
1: uh, there's. There's places to sit in down in the airport and grab food. Or if you're just, I don't think if you're like getting a deli sandwich from some like a little convenience store kind of thing or something, right? That's not really fast food. I don't count that as fast food. What if
0: I got a bagel? It was a turkey sandwich bagel from a bagel place. Yeah.
1: See, I don't think so, right? To me, that's not fast food. I don't guess. It seems like fast food to me. Nah,
0: maybe. I don't know. If somebody's grandma ain't making it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's more about the delivery method, I think. I don't know if I go and sit down somewhere and eat. Is it really fast food? I feel like fast food is in my car or it is I'm just literally grabbing something from a place like that. To me, the definition of fast food involves me moving fastly.
0: Yeah. Well, it makes sense. If I'm going to go out, I want to eat food that I can't make or somebody makes better than me. That's kind of my mentality of it.
1: I say better than you. Because you can, I mean, you can make a sandwich. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I wanted to be a chef. That was like my backup plan is like, I'm going to be a chef. So I don't think I'm particular. But even when you've come up, we go out for Vietnamese food. or We go for food that we wouldn't be able to get here at the house. I can't make. Yeah. I can't make pizza in my house. Like I can go get somewhere else. Yeah. True. Yeah. Okay. That's the end of the show. So another episode in the record books. I hope you enjoyed the more serious part of today's discussion. Thank you for being with us today for episode 87, Architectural Model Making. Special thanks to our sponsor, NCARP, which is conducting a profession-wide study called the Analysis of Practice. If you are an architect or in the process of becoming one, Your participation is valued and important in shaping the future of the licensing process. Please visit ncarb.org forward slash AOP and be a part of the change you want to see. Also, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast.
1: If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get spooktacular new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. Nice. Happy Halloween. Nice. While
0: you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star, don't use Elmer's glue on paper rating.
1: Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wondrous episode.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.